We'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're at that weird time of year for me. I, I struggle this time of year because um, I've been putting a lot of thought and prayer into the theme for next year and trying to get it all ready and dialed in. And, and so now my heart's heavily on that and uh, got to focus in for these last several weeks of the year. And, uh, and hold off on not preaching on anything in, or involved with our theme. And so it's a complete surprise because you guys are always like awe-inspired every time we, we introduce it. So uh, I'm trying to hold that secret in. But um, we're in First Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to conclude chapter 4 today. And uh, I'm going to try to get through um, uh, the book. Uh, we've got two more chapters to get through before Christmas and uh, trying to give us a couple weeks to focus in on uh, Christmas-themed uh, messages, so to say. But um, nonetheless, I've really enjoyed First Timothy. I've enjoyed studying it and preaching it and hope that it's been helpful to us. And uh, so we're going to look at uh, kind of concluding some thoughts from last week and then focus the majority of our time um, on our public example of Christ. But starting in verse number 9, uh, we're in 1 Timothy 4, verse number 9. It says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, which is actually concluding what we talked about last week. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, verse number 10, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, uh, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. And so we're going to look at some thoughts today on godliness, continued from last week, and, and get a little bit more practical into some things that the Bible gives us here this week uh, as we look at how to be an example to those around us, and, uh, and also the importance of using what God has given us. And so let's pray, and then we'll look at some thoughts this morning. Lord, we know that you desire godliness, and I pray that today as we look at your word, it'll help us to be godly. I pray that it'll teach us and grow us and uh, give us understanding and knowledge that we can apply to our lives and be what you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that as we look at these verses, I'd present them clearly and correctly. So Lord, help us, I do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we looked at uh, bodily exercise versus uh, spiritual exercise and the importance that God puts on spiritual exercise to be working out um, your spirituality, to be exercising it through reading and uh, prayer and uh, uh, just obeying God and the things that we're supposed to do. And it says in verse number 9 that this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. God prefers godliness. Uh, godliness is the new nature that we receive as Christians. When we get saved, the Bible says we are giving a, a new nature. Um, and we become a new creature. And that new creature is supposed to be godly. It's supposed to be striving towards godliness, living in holiness, following Christ as Christ has taught us, as Christ has exemplified for us. That's what we're supposed to be. It is what God wants. And so the saying that we looked at last week, um, that God desires godliness to refuse the profane things, but, uh, but to put on uh, godly exercise or spiritual exercise, uh, to be set apart by God, to follow God, God desires this. That's what he prefers in the Christian's life, to be godly. Now, that seems like such a simple statement that everybody would agree with, yet, how many Christians do you know that aren't godly? Right? I mean, when you come down to it, 
and you look at uh, Christians. So I, I work in a secular workplace, and in doing so, I meet a lot of people who profess Christianity by, by word. They say, I am a Christian. And, uh, and it's not my job to doubt. My job is to encourage, edify, um, and, and build up. Uh, but I hear a lot of times, I am a Christian, and then there is zero evidence of it in their life. Or there is very little evidence of it in their life, right? And we all know Christians like that. We've possibly been Christians like that. We understand that aspect. But listen, to say, well, God prefers us to be godly, that's not a, a mind-shattering uh, 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 statement this morning. It's not something that you go, wow, pastor, that's really good. Um, we know that, yet, do we not struggle with it in our own lives? Do we not see other Christians struggle with it, too? That we say, well, I know God wants me to be godly, but am I godly? How do I be godly? We looked at some of that last week, and we'll look at some more today. But we have to understand one thing about being godly, following God, being obedient, all those sorts of things, comes with its difficulties, comes with its obstacles uh, as well. And in verse number 10, it says, uh, For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially those that believe. So we see here this reminder that opposition is going to come to godliness. When we want to be godly, when we try to be godly, when we are godly, there will be obstacles in the path. Now, in this time frame, again, we're in the time frame of Nero, one of the um, harshest critics and uh, abusers of Christians in history. And there was a lot of political backlash for believers. And to have this, um, and I say political backlash, it's not just that you're not supposed to do it, it's that if you did it, um, you were attacked for it, violently attacked for it. And so there was this understanding that when you follow God, when you live godly, when you trust in the living God, you are going to suffer. Now, I've grown up in church my whole life, and I've heard this before, and, and I'm not saying that I haven't, but most of the time in church, we try very hard to make Christianity look as this um, uh, pleasant, peaceful, uh, perfect existence, Right? Um, now, I've, I grew up around evangelists. Evangelists are um, fortunate because they get to come into churches and preach for a day, three days, four days, seven days, and then they leave. So they can say whatever they want and don't have to worry about the backlash, right? They can say um, um, the hurtful things of Scripture. By that, I mean things that, are, that penetrate and, and, and kick at our souls. And they can leave and they don't have to deal with the backlash from the people. The pastor gets to do that. Um, they can come in and speak uh, of the, the, the great, wonderful, powerful, mighty, and flowery, I'll use that word, things of Scripture, um, and they can leave, and, and the pastor has to deal with the fact that that's not all that's in the Scripture, right? And so they get to come and leave. So I've been around evangelists my whole life, and evangelists, um, they are, tend to come in and preach hard. Um, they preach on the hard topics, on the things that, hey, your sin is, is, is wicked, it's evil, it's tearing you down, it's, it's a problem. You're the reason for different issues in your life, and you're the reason for these struggles, and, and it's your fault, and all these kinds of things, which I believe is true uh, in, in most cases. And then they leave, and then the pastor's there with a bunch of people that are depressed because of their wicked lives, and they just, they're just sitting there going, well, that was no fun. I have committed as a pastor to, to well, preach the whole, the whole 
Bible, but uh, with that, not make the Christian life what it's not. Following Christ promises to have hardships on this earth. When you obey God, there will be the world against you, plain and simple. Now, that doesn't, I think as a young person, I remember as a young person, um, hearing preachers preach on uh, living for God and surrendering to God and following God and all these sorts of things and, and, and how much of a blessing it is and how great it is. And I concur with that and I agree with that 100%. But I also don't want to trick young people or adults for that matter into thinking that following God means every single day is perfect. It's like the uh, young couple that is dating and they're going to get married and they think that marriage is going to be awesome and there's going to be no bad days. Uh, we won't fight. We won't argue. Um, it'll just be pure bliss. Um, the reality is this marriage is hard. Uh, you have two people with two opinions um, and those opinions don't always match up. And then it comes into disagreements and then it comes into you snore and then it comes into... Um, you know, that food was dry, and then it comes into all these other things that happen in life, and it causes conflict. Now, a godly marriage works through the conflict, biblically, and, and it always comes out stronger. Uh, the reality is, is that anytime people are involved, conflict is involved. But the Bible tells us that there is a constant conflict between the things of the world and the things of God. And so anytime we are doing the things of God, the things of the world are at conflict against us. And it is a struggle. That's why living for God isn't easy. When we look at it in the grand scheme of things, and I stand by this still because the Bible teaches it, obeying God always has a positive outcome. But it doesn't mean that the present is, is pleasant. It's why we sing about a shelter in the time of storm. We're not absent from storms because we're Christians. Now, thankfully, we have some, I'll use the word someone, we have God to lean on and to depend on and to trust in and to, to have care for us. But it doesn't mean that hardship, I mean, my goodness, read the Bible. Noah, if you think the ark was a completely pleasant experience, I think you're wrong. <laughs> I mean, the end at the end was, was positive. He lived. But the building of it, uh, the chores involved with it, uh, the being cooped up with family for that long, it wasn't all pleasant. Job, not pleasant. Look at the prophets. Not, not, not always pleasant. Look at the disciples in the New Testament. Not always pleasant. See, following God is not about uh, doing it so that every day is sunshine and daisies. It's doing it because the end result is worth it. But hardship's going to come. And we have to understand that our exercise in godliness, it is acceptable, it is good, it is pleasant, it's what God prefers. But you have to understand you're going to experience pain. God knows you're going to experience pain. God tells us we're going to experience pain. And if God knows that we're going to experience pain, then God knows how to help us through the pain. And so despite the persecution that comes, despite the hardships that comes, despite the things that knock you off your feet, stay godly. Be godly. Exercise godliness. Verse 11, these things command and teach. Not only are we supposed to do it, 
we're supposed to help other people do it. We're supposed to, to teach other people how to be godly, live godly, uh, obey God through the hardships, through the difficulties, through the things that come our way. Not only are we supposed to persevere through them with God's help, we're supposed to help other people do the same thing. So how do we do this? Well, that's what we see here in verse number um, 12. Uh, it says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers. And word, and conversation, and charity, and spirit, and faith, and purity. Well, how in the world are we supposed to teach others to be godly? First of all, we've got to be godly. You see, the world will tell you to do everything for yourself. Set yourself up uh, for success. The Bible teaches you to do everything for others. The Bible does not, um, it does not ignore what we must do for ourselves. The, uh, the faith that we must have, the obedience that we must have, um, and, and all of those sorts of things. But the Bible does tell us that we are supposed to do these things for others. I go back to James. I've already mentioned it several times in this, uh, in this book. But uh, my faith is shown by my works. So why should I be good? Why should I do godly things? Why should I have good works? Not for me, but for others. That others can see. That the lost can see what God has done in my life and what God is doing in my life and that he's worth believing in. And so that the saints, the Christians, can have an example to follow. Paul, Paul never tells us that he is the perfect example, but Paul does say, listen, follow me as I followed Christ. He knew that he was an example. He knew he was supposed to be an example. And he was confident that he had done, lived his life in a way that he was an example. Are you confident in your Christianity to say, follow me as I have followed Christ? Now, the problem is in today's Christianity, a lot of people say, follow me as I have followed Christ. And what they want is just for you to follow them. And one thing we see about Paul's life through Scripture is that Paul truly was, now he was not perfect, but Paul truly was an example of how to live for Christ. So Paul wasn't saying, I'm the one. But he was confident in his position with God to say, I am setting an example for you to follow. And that's where we should be as well as Christians. We should be an example. Now, he says in verse number 12, we're going to get to this, let no man despise thy youth in just a second. But he says, be thou an example of the believers. What you're supposed to be. Live the way that you're supposed to live. Be the example. That is the godliness that God desires. First of all, is covered in the verses we looked at last week. The godly exercise that we do in our own lives to be fit spiritually the way that God wants us to be. But now we go on to be examples of the believers, what we're supposed to be. Now he says here, first of all, we've got to face the problem at hand. And in Timothy's case, it was age. And so he says, let no man despise thy youth there in verse number 12. What we know of Timothy, first of all, he wasn't young. 
Um, by young, I mean he wasn't a teenager. Um, I believe he was in his 30s from what I can pick up. Uh, and so he wasn't like this little kid or anything like that. But the elders and a lot of the leaders there in this area would have been older than that. And so now I became a pastor at age 26. And, uh, and I know I was wise beyond my years. But uh, nonetheless, at 26, you walk into a church at 26, an existing church, a church that existed for 60 years, and a lot of the people in the church had been there for 60 years. And so I walk in as a 26-year-old as the pastor. Um, immediately, there were people who tried to push their way around. This young guy, he's going to do whatever I tell him to do, however I tell him to do it. Now, I'm thankful, first of all, for a good pastor. I was thankful for good parents. I was thankful for good um, spiritual uh, um, uh, examples and men that I could lean on for advice and things like that. And I was thankful for people in the church, too, that were, uh, that were good church members and, and helpful to their pastor. But there were some who thought, this young guy, we're going to get him in here, and then we're going to make him do whatever we want to do. Now, I, I was young, but I wasn't as stupid, at least in this area, uh, as they thought I was. And and I understood very much the weight that was on my shoulder and the importance of my role uh, of the church and, and, and what I was supposed to do within the church, the leadership that I was supposed to provide for the church. And, uh, and so very quickly they learned, well, this guy isn't going to just do whatever we tell him to do. Um, and, and in some ways good, in some ways bad, I'm sure. Uh, I'm thankful for that church. They let me mature and grow um, and make mistakes and things like that as well. I'm thankful for that. But I understand here when, when Paul says to Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. I understand the uh, pressure that Timothy was under. The, uh, the older men in the church uh, that would put pressure on him, um, that would not agree with him, that would uh, uh, try to intimidate him or try to run over him, I understand that. And Timothy here was in a situation in a community that was wicked. He was in a, a place that was in need of spiritual leadership. And Paul says to him, don't let age define you. It's not about physical age, it's about spiritual maturity. Bodily exercise profits little, but spiritual exercise. And Timothy, you've done the spiritual exercise. So don't let them despise your youth. Age is interesting. The older I get, the younger people seem. Uh, you know, I'm sitting around, I coach these high school kids, and I'm sitting there going, my goodness, they're so young. Now every guy that we hire at work is in their 20s, and I'm sitting there going, my goodness, these guys are young. Uh, and I'm going, wait a second, I'm not that old, am I? And sure enough, I am. How about that? Uh, <laughs> you know what's interesting? You look at David and Saul. Saul says, I need someone who's skilled to play the harp. And someone comes to Saul and they say, there is this person, son of Jesse, David. And this is how, in 1 Samuel, David is described to Saul. It says, he is cunning in playing, mighty valiant, man of war, prudent in matters, and a comely person, good charisma, uh, and the Lord is with him. That's how David was described to King Saul 
in 1 Samuel, you know what Saul had David do? Sit in the corner and play music. Now, David described to Saul as cunning and playing. Okay, it's fine. Mighty, valiant, man of war, prudent in manners, a comely person, and the Lord is with them. Saul said, great, let them sit in the corner and play music. Saul didn't see David for what God saw David for, which isn't surprising. But Saul struggled to see David for what David was and what he could be. And then down the road, David would come one day to visit his brothers, and he would hear some chattering going on and see this uh, big guy down in the valley mocking God, mocking God's army. And he says, can someone please shut that guy up? Pardon my language. And they all go, nope. So David said, well, I will. And he goes down there eventually with his stones and his sling, and he goes round and round and round and round and round and round and round, and he lets it go, and the stone flies, and bloop, right in the forehead. Guy falls down. David cuts his head off. Okay. The nation, the army, saw David as something different at that moment, did they not? But David had a... uh, 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 testimony already before, before Goliath where someone said he's mighty valiant, he's a man of war he's prudent in matters, he's comely a person, he's, the Lord is with him we tell the story of David and we always tell him as this little kid uh, last in line in the family um, and, uh, and nobody else thought he should be king but God did God saw him, thought he should be king Um, which in some ways is true. But he's anointed king by Samuel um, there at his father's house, and there's still time to come before he's actually going to take the throne. But he had a testimony already as he grew. He had a testimony as someone who was meant for something, is maybe the way we describe it in today's terminology. But Saul looked at him and said, I just want you to play the harp. Then he killed Goliath by God's grace and with God's help. And he comes into the town and everyone's cheering. Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. The people saw something in David. Saul just wanted him to play the harp. You see, when when we grow in God, and we learn about God, and we understand God, and we read our Bible, and we study it, and we pray, and we grow in wisdom and in knowledge. We're growing spiritually. It's our, it's our spiritual exercise. And we're becoming spiritually fit. And we're going to go talk to people about God's Word, and their first thought is going to be, hey, why are you talking to me, you young whippersnapper? Now, I take that as a compliment these days if someone calls me that. Uh, but the reality is, as we go to uncles, aunts, maybe parents that are older than us, co-workers maybe that are still older than us. And sometimes they look at us and they say, you know, I don't need you to tell me anything. It's not always age. It could be other things that, that factor into it. But the point here is not just age, although that's the context of this verse. The, the point is, is, 
is what God has given you, go boldly with. How you've grown and what you know through God's word, go boldly with it. Don't let anybody stop you. In Timothy's case, age was an obstacle that he was going to have to get over. And so he is instructed, let no man despise thy youth. He says, but be an example. Every Christian is an example. The question is, is what are you an example of? If you were to tell uh, someone that you've been around with for a week that, hey, I'm a Christian, would they go, you are? Or would they go, yeah, we know. If you were to tell your coworkers who you've been with for a while now, hey, I'm a Christian, would they go, you are? Or would they go, yeah, we know. You know, the way that we live is so important. And it's, it's so important outside for our testimony and for the, the sake of the gospel. But the focus here on 1 Timothy isn't that. The focus is on being an example of the believers. Timothy was a preacher, and he had to be an example to his church. And sometimes we as the church focus so much on the Great Commission, which is incredibly important and we should do so. But so much on the Great Commission of go and tell that we sometimes abandon the role and responsibility that we play within the Christians' lives around us. The edification and the encouragement and the building up and the example of what Christ is and what Christ has done and what we should be as believers. And so the problem that we're fighting now is how to be that example. And he tells us a number of things here. First of all, uh, he is to be an example of the believers. He's to be an example uh, of Christ to the believers. In which ways? Well, it says there in verse number 12, uh, in word. In the things that are said, the spoken word, the things that I speak, I'm supposed to be an example of the believers. The way that I talk, how I talk, am I friendly? Am I harsh? Am I encouraging? Am I downgrading? Those things are important. What I say. I mean, my goodness, the tongue is sharp. It's like a fire, a flame that sparks and boom, things burn. The tongue can do damage. I've told you many times, my family is a very sarcastic family. Um, We enjoyed sitting around and making fun of each other. Uh, from the earliest of ages that I can remember, we would do this. Uh, a very sarcastic family. I have had to learn, and I'm still learning and trying to get better at it, of when it's appropriate. Um, for me, it's natural, and I have to control it. The, the tongue can do so much damage. Think about politicians. Politicians. Uh, camera in their face, microphone right there all the time. One word out of place can sink a politician. The reality is, is one word out of place can ruin a relationship within a church. It's hard to overcome. The fire does a lot of damage. So we have to be an example in what we say. Then it says as well in conversation, which is lifestyle. Uh, a lifestyle beyond rebuke, and a lifestyle that lives as an advertisement of the gospel and the things of God. How do I live?
it's hard to, um, it's easy at home, I think. It's easy uh, once or twice a week at church overall. Um, but it's, it's that everyday lifestyle. I remember um, going to college. I didn't know very many people when I went to college. I knew a handful of, of people there. And, um, and I, I kind of saw it as an opportunity to be who I wanted to be. Uh, people I didn't know, so I didn't have to live up to a family name. I didn't have to um, live up to really any outside expectation. I, I had a fresh start in some ways. Um, where I could introduce myself and no one would know anything about me except for what I told them. And then each summer I would go back home and work um, at the ranch. And, uh, and I had some people that would come from school and work in the summer, and we'd go back to school, you know, and so then they saw me in Tennessee and they saw me in Wisconsin. I had one guy one time tell me, he says, it was during the summer one time, we'd worked together for a couple summers, and he said, you're a lot different here in Tennessee than you are at college. And I said, well, this is like, this is my life. This is what I've done my whole life. This is, you know, I'm more confident. I'm more comfortable. Um, at, in Tennessee, I was, I mean, I knew everything that was going on, and just everything was natural there. At college, it was different. I was fitting into a new social dynamic. I was having to go to classes. I was doing all these things that were just different in my life. But it did point out to me, wow, I really am. I have two different, uh, not personalities, but two different um, uh, uh, characteristics. In Tennessee, I was outgoing and a little bit more bolder and brasher. In, in Wisconsin, I was a little bit more quiet and um, just trying to get by. <laughs> I, didn't want, I didn't want the teachers to know who I was, uh, good or bad. I just wanted to just, just get through it and move on. I didn't want the authorities at school to know my name. I just, just, let me just get on, get in and get out, right? That was my goal, and I accomplished it overall. Uh, as a Christian, wherever we are, our lifestyle is a representation of God in one way or another, good or bad. At home, our family knows the most about us. They see us, uh, they see us at our truest selves. And we are an example in our homes. Uh, when our workplace, we're an example. At church, we're an example. We've all been in church long enough to know that there have been good examples and bad examples. Well, which one are you? You have to be an example in word, in conversation, in charity, in compassion, in love. How we love people. We have to be an example. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. We have to be an example of that as believers. In spirit, what, what is radiated out of us and how we act. I like to use Winnie the Pooh for this. I know a super spiritual example, but um, Eeyore is one of my favorite characters of all time. I don't relate with Eeyore in very many ways. Um, but nonetheless, I always liked Eeyore for some reason. But Eeyore always had his head drooped for the most part. Anytime he got excited, he very quickly realized it wasn't worth it, and he dropped his head back down. He was always alone. Nobody likes me. Lose his tail. His house would fall over. It's just a rough life for Eeyore. You know, the Christian's life is not an Eeyore life. 
And you'll never convince me that it is. The Christian is not supposed to be mopey. Because if all the Christian has is God, <laughs> that's plenty. We're supposed to be an example in spirit. If our coworkers, our lost coworkers, see us mopey, what do they think about God? They say it's not worth it. I've seen miserable Christians. Now, I grew up in ministry, and I've seen ministry people try to tell you about how hard ministry is. And I, I, I mean, I agree, ministry can be very, very difficult. But if all I have is God, i got enough. A Christian's not supposed to be mopey. Their spirit is supposed to be one that is joyful, that is God-filled. Uh, and, and I get it, man. I'm not a naturally chipper guy. Uh, I don't think we have to be obnoxiously chipper, but, uh, but our spirit should be one that people don't go, man, that guy, I don't want his life. Man, that lady, I don't want her life. They're just miserable all the time. God's better than that, and our spirit should show it. Uh, in faith, uh, it says there in verse number 12 as well, in convictions and doctrine and the things that we live by, we're supposed to be an example of that. In purity and cleanliness of our lives, we're supposed to be an example. Working in a secular workplace, I hear things, um, I'm not saying that I've never heard them before, but uh, I shouldn't have heard them in a Christian workplace. But, uh, uh, but in a secular workplace, man, I hear things and I'm just like, I just shake my head. You know what? We're supposed to be an example of Purity. Adam's told the story before, he's not in here, but um, Adam's told the story before about just work and guys joking about girlfriends and wives and, and uh, him, his wife dropping him off one time at work and um, she had, uh, she had uh, changed the way that she looked and so someone's like, hey man, who brought you to work today? <laughs> you know, it's like, that's my wife. No, that wasn't your wife. Yes, that's my wife. Uh, and just that, that idea of, of surprise that he, someone else dropped him off. No, it was, it was her. See, we're supposed to be an example of purity. The things that we say, the things that we do, the way that we act. Um, an example of cleanliness, purity, holiness of the believer. And for each other to, to exemplify that. But not only are we supposed to be an example, we're supposed to continue to grow. It says in verse 13, Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, and to doctrine. Continued growth. The Christian's um, growth is never done. Now that can be discouraging for some who haven't grown very much. It could be discouraging for some who've grown a lot. <laughs> Think, wait, I have to keep growing? But he says continuing, continues in, in a couple of ways. Give attendance to reading. Now, I've heard people say that this means reading in general. I believe it is strictly pointing to reading of Scripture. Um, readers are leaders. Okay, whatever. But uh, reading of Scripture is what matters. It's what's important. It's what teaches us and grows us. Read the Bible. Study the Word of God. Know it, understand it. To exhortation, it says. Ex exhortation of the saints. This is the same word that's used to describe Barnabas, who we know as this very encouraging, helpful man. 
And it's also the same word that is, uh, that is translated out of the same word when the Holy Spirit is called a comforter. This exhortation. If we look at those two examples, the Holy Spirit as a comforter is the ultimate example, is he not? A comforter will come. I'm going to send a comforter. Uh, I need comfort. And God says, I'm sending him for you. And then you look at Barnabas and the way that Barnabas came alongside and supported and lifted up and and helped uh, men in ministry and, and just encouraged. He was an encourager. Man, we need more of those. We need more people who will just encourage. We're so quick to say, you did wrong here. You need to do better in this. You need this to improve. But are we good enough at coming along and saying, hey, you're doing good. Hey, keep it up. Hey, I'm really proud of you for this. I had someone send me a sermon the other day um, that he preached, and he said, hey, if you got a few minutes, can you just watch this and critique? Uh, he had, doesn't preach a lot, and, and he just wanted some advice uh, on it, and I watched, I watched the, the, the sermon, and I just, I just sent him back uh, five or six thoughts, and all of them were positive, and they were positive on purpose. I didn't, I didn't critique anything negatively. And, and the reason behind it is, is because if someone is going to proclaim God's word, we should encourage them to proclaim God's word. Now, he was looking for, did I talk too fast? Should I structure the sermon differently? And he was looking for helpful advice, and I like to think that it was helpful nonetheless. But I just, I just came back with, I loved how you did this. This was really good. This was really practical. This was really helpful. Uh, continue to do this. Those kinds of things there. Because I remember as a young preacher, you don't get a whole lot of, hey, you did well. Now, I did get some, hey, you tried. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, but I'll tell you what, as Christians, don't we just need someone to encourage us? That's why I love going to men's retreats and conferences and those kinds of things because I get encouraged, exhorted, comforted. We need to be doing that. So as we are in the church, read, exhort, and give attendance to doctrine, teaching. Listen, doctrine trumps experience. It goes back to let no man despise thy youth. Doctrine trumps experience. I've told you before, but I'll say it again. First time I counseled a couple, first question they asked, have you done this a lot? Nope. You're my first ones immediately their countenance was like, ugh. I said, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to show you from God's word how we can fix the problems that are going on in your life. And God's word has been around for quite some time, and it's helped a whole lot of marriages. Doctrine trumps experience. God's word trumps everything else. Why? Because it works. Because it's truth. Because it's from God. He gives us a warning here after this idea of of being an example. 
he says a few things. Verse number 14, neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy with laying on of hands in the presbytery. He says, don't neglect the gifts that God has given you. Timothy was under attack by the elders. Timothy was under attack by politicians. He was being attacked within the church and without of the church. And the challenge that he was given was keep on keeping on. I've heard that my whole life. I don't know if you have, but I've heard that my whole life. Keep on keeping on. Just keep doing right. Take the next step, which is right. Timothy was given gifts by God to do the job that God had called him to do. You are given gifts by God to do the job that God has called you to do. To do. Neglect not the gift that is in thee. Use the gifts that God has given you. Do the work that God has called you to. Verse number 15. It says, meditate upon these things. Give thyself wholly to them that, they pro- that they, thy profiting may appear to all. He says, take time on the things that God has given you. Meditate on them. Think on them. Give yourself wholly to them. Do what God has told you to do. Put it all your effort into it. Everything you got. And in verse 16, he says, continue. Take heed unto thyself. And under the doctrine, continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. He says, keep on. Keep on. And if you do so, you'll save yourself. What is he talking about there? He's talking about salvation, heavenly salvation? No. Save yourself from the heartache, from the depression, from the hardship, from the... Uh, uh, the, the beating yourself up from the doubt, uh, from the lack of faith, from all these things, if you'll meditate and focus and give yourself wholly to the things of God and take heed unto them and take heed unto the doctrine that you know, it's going to help you carry through. And not only yourself, it's going to help those that hear you too. You can't tell someone, hey, keep on for God if you're not living for God. You can tell them all you want to, they ain't going to listen to you. I've seen Christians who were at a church and who weren't living for God try to tell someone, typically it's at a funeral, but try to tell someone, hey, you just stick with it. Hey, God is good. God loves you. You just keep, you just keep doing what's right. And they look at them like, what? What? You can't do it. You cannot help someone for God if you're not living for God. If you're not the example, if you're not exhorting, if you're not heeding the doctrine that you know, you're not going to be able to help other people do it. God desires godliness. Are you godly? Usually if you ask someone, are you godly, the answer is no. Out of humility at the very least, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm not not godly. Okay, does God see you as godly? Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Have you done the spiritual exercise? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? Do you go to church? Are you an example of what a believer is supposed to be? Can your children look at your life and say, I can follow their example and I'll be what God wants me to be? let alone fellow church members. 
God says, this is what you're supposed to be. Keep on keeping on. And if you're not keeping on, then get on keeping on, and then keep on keeping on, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Be what God wants you to be. We know what God wants us to be, but are we what God wants us to be? Lord, help us to be what we're supposed to be as individuals and as a church. Uh, God, we need your help, obviously. But I know it starts with us being willing. Willing to be changed. Willing to be used. God, help us to be an example. Help us to desire what you desire. Lord, you're the potter and we're the clay. Mold us into what you desire for us to be. Open our hearts today to be willing. And then, Lord, change us. Create in us a new heart, a clean heart. Develop us into what you want us to be. Lord, we ask this help in Jesus' name. Their heads bowed.